All right, all right. Good morning, everybody. So, uh, FYI, if I haven't met you, my name is Steve. I'm the lead and teaching pastor here at Colossae Sherwood. And um, when we just want to encourage you that when we say, hey, uh, spend some time to get to know each other, um, use that time. We will let it go for three, four, five minutes because the goal of the church is not to come and just stare forward, but the goal is to come and be God's people together. And so we really value that time of even the connection that you just had. And so uh, don't feel rushed, like you have to sit down or do a quick greeting, like this is uh, the time for you to get to know one another and spend some time doing it. So I just want to encourage you guys in that. But if this is your first time uh, to Colossae, super glad that you are here. If you have been here before, you know me and you know the spiel. So we're going to jump right in. Gospel of Luke today is where we're going to get started. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles to Luke, um, and I think the way I want to start talking today is I want to talk about first impressions. If you've lived longer than 10 minutes, you know that a first impression means a lot. Whether it's a girl that you're looking to date or a guy that you're looking to date and you're looking forward to meeting them and getting to know them, like you just, you want to take a shower, you want to be on your best behavior, like it's that first impression that really matters. Maybe you're going in for a couple of job interviews soon and you know that like you got to have your hair done, you got to be smelling good, you got to be ready to get a firm handshake and uh, really present yourself well. Um, but when it comes to first impressions, you know that sometimes they go great and sometimes they go horribly. And that's just the nature of life sometimes. And I think when we come to the Bible, we have a lot of first impressions on things. Okay, for example, how many of you read Leviticus this morning and enjoyed the Lord? No hands went up. Fantastic. Okay, here's the reason. When we look at the book of Leviticus, we think, oh, this is lame and boring and not relevant to my life. And yet, if we looked at the book of Leviticus the way that it's meant to be looked at, we would see it as God's grace towards Israel. We would see it as God making a way through the sacrificial system for unholy people to be made holy, to be brought into God's presence. And so when we come to the Bible, I want us to have a good first impression on the gospel of Luke. And so here's what essentially the gospels have been written from four different perspectives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one bring a unique flavor and sense to what they're trying to communicate. So in Matthew's gospel, you have Jesus is the king that Israel wasn't expecting. So last week we talked about how we are citizens of the king, that we live in God's kingdom, and because we live in God's kingdom, what we're about is we're about sharing with his authority. So Matthew's whole goal is to talk about the authority of Jesus. Mark, Jesus is the suffering servant in Mark's gospel. You know, that very famous passage in Mark 10, 42, where it says that the Son of Man came to serve and seek to serve. He didn't come to be served. That was the goal. His goal was to come and give him of himself. And Mark's gospel is very action-packed. It moves from one scene to the next scene to the next scene. So it's very fast-paced, and it's focused on the works of Jesus. In uh, John's gospel, Jesus is the Son of God. The goal of John, it takes you right from even John chapter 1, right? In the beginning was God. He's trying to show you that Jesus Christ is not just merely a man, but he is God in flesh. And that's the whole point of the gospel. So all of his teachings and miracles point back to Jesus being the Son of God. But here's the emphasis in Luke's gospel. He's got a very unique emphasis, and it's this. He says that Jesus is the Son of Man. So from Daniel chapter 7, he's the one that's going to come and rule and reign and exist to bring God's kingdom. And really, he's the world's Savior. But his salvation looks unique. His salvation looks different. 
And so what really his salvation doesn't just bring new life for individuals, but it causes social structures to change and it causes economic systems to shift. Now it's very unique to the gospel of Luke, but that's the whole theme that we're going to be going through in this gospel. And we're probably going to be in Luke for a long time. My goal is probably to the end of summer. So we're going to spend a lot of time seeing how Luke portrays Jesus for us in this story. So again, here's the theme. Jesus is the son of man who is the world's savior. His salvation brings a new way of life that causes social structures and economic systems to change and shift. So if you want to open up to Luke 1, 1 through 4, we're going to start there and the verses will be on the screen. Luke starts his gospel like this. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So Luke starts off his gospel with this one run-on sentence. If you're an English fan, you just hated me reading that because it's like again and again and again. This big run, uh, big long run-on sentence that essentially is a prologue. Now, for uh, the ancient uh, Roman and Greek world, this was very common. Um, since they didn't have books, they didn't have tables of contents, they weren't able to just kind of flip through a page and find out where it was. In fact, most of these were written on scrolls. So in order to really have an idea of what was going on throughout this long scroll, you had this introduction. So see this essentially like our modern day table of contents. This is what Luke is trying to tell us about uh, this gospel. So he says this. He says he's writing a story about the life of Jesus Christ. So, and he acknowledges a few things about his story. He says first in verse one, that his gospel isn't the first of its kind. He's saying, hey guys, I'm not writing something original here. This should be familiar to you. This should be common to you. But this is not something that I have come up with. Second, he says that his gospel is written down. Just like Mark, Matthew, and John's, this gospel is written down. And it really is written down from the oral tradition that it was given. So the goal of the gospel of Luke is to be faithful to the oral traditions in this context. In this world, it was a very illiterate society. So in order for them to know what God had done, it was the responsibility of the older generation to tell the younger generation what God had done. You see this all throughout Israel's history. You see this all throughout the Exodus, reminding God's people of what what God has done for them. So next, he says his gospel is based on research that's occurred for a long period of time. Look at verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past. So Luke himself was a doctor. Right? His gospel isn't founded on myth or folklore. His gospel is founded on facts and figures because that's how he conducts his life. That's how he conducts his business. He followed things closely and methodically, like a doctor would naturally do. Uh, he writes an orderly account. Again, a very methodical move as a doctor. He's not scatterbrained. He's not like me trying to finish a project where you just hope someday you land it. He's got a plan A, B, and C, and he's going to bring it to completion. And he's writing this to one person. Now, this is incredibly unique when it comes to the scriptures. Here's the reason. Most of the time we look at a New Testament book in particular, they're written to groups of people, right? So it's written to the church in Corinth. It's written to the church in Galatia. It's written to the church in Philippi. But this one's unique because it's written to one dude. His name's Theophilus. And the whole point of that run-on sentence is to say, 
He's writing this loud and clear for Theophilus to know and have assurance, have certainty in what's being taught. We want you to know, Theophilus, that what you've heard is true. We want you to know that it's beyond scrutiny. We want you to know that this account has some credibility. Theophilus, we want you to know that this is trustworthy. So from this prologue, we see the the purpose and the intent of Luke's gospel right up front, that Theophilus would have certainty when it comes to the text of Scripture. So, Now what I want to do is I want us to spend some time talking through the entire outline of the book of Luke, okay? Um, We're going to talk through each of the four sections, so we're going to look through what this says on the screen here. So, but before we jump into that chart, there's one thing I have to mention is that Luke's gospel is not a standalone document. He didn't write this by himself. Uh, Tradition actually says that it it was Luke Acts that was the same thing. So it's really the first volume in a two-volume set. That's the whole point of the Gospel of Luke. So as we've seen in this text, Theophilus is the recipient of Luke, but he's also the recipient of the book of Acts. Look on the screen, Acts 1, 1 through 2 says this, In my first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the first day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So again, this isn't an uncommon thing. The book of Chronicles was normally one book called Chronicles, but because it was so long, it was split up into First and Second Chronicles. So again, all he's trying to say is that Luke is about Jesus and Acts is what happens to the church after Luke's gospel about Jesus. So we're going to spend some time talking through this. And again, here's the theme. Here's the point. Here's what we have to drive home when it comes to Luke's gospel. Jesus is the Son of Man who's the world's savior, and his emphasis on his salvation causes social structures to change and economic systems to change. So here's where we're going to start off. These are the first four breakdowns. So it looks like this. You have four breakdowns, uh, one, uh, chapter 1, 1 through 38, or 1, 1 through 338 is the coming Messiah section. Next section, 4, 1 through 950 is the Messianic ministry. Next after that, uh, 951 to 1927, the journey to Jerusalem. And then finally, 1928 through 2453, which is his time in Jerusalem. So the story starts off at the beginning of Jesus' life and builds and builds and builds to the apex of Jesus arriving in Jerusalem and fulfilling his Messianic ministry. So I want to take a look really at what that theme of the Gospel of Luke is about. So that black bar that you see on the screen, it's going to get filled in and it says this. It should say release and freedom with an arrow that goes both ways. And the other uh, side is the social and the economic idea. So again, uh, this is the clear theme in Luke's Gospel. This is the whole point of what he's trying to say. Is that those who receive release and freedom from God are actually those who will experience social change and economic change. Now, don't hear this as a prosperity gospel. That's not the point. There's evil social systems and there's evil economic systems all throughout the world. And first century Rome was one of those great places, okay? There was a lot of evil. There was a lot of hatred. There was a lot of uh, racism that was happening in that first century. So when Luke's writing this gospel, he's trying to say that this is true. So you see that going in one direction, but it also goes the other direction. And here's the reason why it goes the other direction. Because those who also experienced social change first and economic change first were actually released and had freedom to become a believer. We're going to see that all throughout the gospel, that that Jesus came to not only give salvation to people, but he came to change the world order. 
He came to change and shift how all that's happening. So that's the theme. We're going to see that all throughout. And I want you guys to get familiar with this outline because as we fill it in week by week, we're going to spend time unpacking it. So this whole goal of the outline is to get us to see the clear theme and the clear thrust of the gospel of Luke. So let's take a look at section number one, the coming Messiah. So the first section on the box says expectations for Messiah and kingdom. And the next section on the bottom says it anchors Jesus to the Old Testament. So in Luke 1, 3 through 38, we're titling that section, The Coming Messiah, because it's dealing with the anticipation of Israel. So once we get through that introductory section, where Paul writes to most excellent Theophilus, most likely this was a man who had a lot of rule, who had a lot of authority, and most likely he had economic wealth and social status. So for him to be writing this, he's talking about the expectations that a man like this probably would not see probably didn't have a Hebrew background, probably didn't know of the prophecies. Most likely he lived in a very polytheistic world, multiple gods, Roman mythology, etc., etc. So Luke is really trying to say, hey, Jesus is the expected Messiah that Israel longed for. And this is the massive understanding of this section. We see that Jesus is both the Messiah, the Savior of the world, because of all the prophetic stuff that happens. So uh, these are going to be some of the, the sections where we deal with the prophecies of both John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. And here's what makes those unique. Those are two people in the story of Luke that should not be having babies. It's just not supposed to happen. Joseph and Mary are off limits because they are not married. In fact, she is a virgin, so she should really not be having a baby. Okay? Same thing goes for Zacchaeus and Elizabeth. They are old, legitimately old. And because of that, they couldn't have a baby. So what's unique is that Jesus is saying that even for this elderly couple who is beyond birthing age and those who socially shouldn't even have a baby, those are the two people where Jesus starts his gospel. Those are the two people who are actually promised a baby. And uh, one baby will become John the Baptist to lead the way for what Jesus is to come. And the other baby is going to be Jesus himself who will be the Messiah. So throughout this section, we're going to see Jesus grow up. We're going to see him presented in a temple and really just have one verse on the life of Jesus, which is very unique. A lot of scholars look at this and say, well, what, what happened in Jesus' younger years? Luke 2.52 says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and with man, and that's it. <laughs> that's all you get in Luke's gospel. Because the point is not how he grew up, but that he arrived, he's here, and yes, he was faithful to be the Messiah throughout his teenage years, which made Mary probably very happy. But also, when he, he, the point is that he's supposed to be the Messiah. So Luke is going to jump to where he needs to go. He starts about talking about John the Baptist's public ministry. And then there's this unique genealogy that will link Jesus back to Adam. But what's interesting is that it's linked through the adopted father. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history world, genealogies are done through the father, but not the adopted father. So that makes Joseph really unique in this story, that that Jesus' line actually comes through the adopted father of Jesus. Very exciting. The next section talks about the messianic ministry. So uh, in uh, 4, 1 through 9, 50, this is the section that we're really starting to get to the heart of what Jesus is talking about. He's entitled it The Messianic Ministry, and this covers six chapters of Luke's gospel. So this is where that main thing comes to play. He, he officially starts his ministry after being tempted by Satan, and he reads from the scroll in Isaiah 61.1, and it says this. This is the whole crux. 
He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Now we're going to get back to that definition in just a second. But he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is where the first section has been entitled, The Freedom for the Poor. Now, the word in our text says liberty, but in the Greek text, it's, it's the word ephesus, which means literally release, like you're being released from something. This was the term that was used in Leviticus. Remember when you read Leviticus this morning? It was awesome. So when you're in Leviticus, that's what you were looking for. And it talks about the freedom that comes to those who are released in what's called the year of Jubilee. Every seven years in Jewish history, there's the year of Jubilee. This is when debts are paid. This is when land that has been stolen is given back to a family line. This is when those who were outcasted because of a disease or an illness were now brought back into the community of faith. So when, when Luke is saying that there's this release and this freedom that happens, for those Israelite mindset, they're thinking year of Jubilee. This is a big deal. They call it the year of Jubilee because you rejoice a lot in the year of Jubilee. You're excited because things are being made right. Wrongs that have happened to you are being made right. And Jesus is the one who's responsible for that when it comes to the salvation of men. And so, and yet this word that Jesus uses to describe his ministry, it's a release for a specific group of people. He says it's for the poor. Now, for us uh, living in kind of a wealthy area of southwest Portland, um, when we think poor, I don't want you to just be thinking economically poor. I don't want you just to be thinking about those who don't have any money. Do you remember in the summer series when we did the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus starts off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You guys remember that when you were here in the summer? This is the poor that Jesus is talking about. The Hebrew word for poor here, it comes from Isaiah 61. It's the word ani, which refers to those who are really of low social status. That would be women, that would be children, that would be the elderly, that would be those with disabilities. Um, It's also noted that that could also be those who have made poor uh, life choices. Um, Could be the prostitute, it could be the sick man, Uh, it could be uh, like the rich young ruler who squanders his wealth. It could be like that, that those who, who make dumb, stupid life decisions, they're a part of this group called the poor. And you see, the, the, the bottom box is really what Jesus is doing throughout this section. So in this section, Jesus' goal is that he's showing the kingdom of God. Uh, throughout his ministry, he does this in a number of different ways to demonstrate it, but his goal is to demonstrate the good news. His goal is to demonstrate it. So uh, he heals a man with a demon, allowing him to be released uh, from slavery, from Satan, and be brought back into the community of faith. He heals a paralytic. He cleanses a leper. He calls a tax collector to himself, which was a big no-no in that day. Uh, He teaches his famous Sermon on the Mount where he shows off his kingdom people how to live. He gives them a kingdom ethic to live in a new way. Uh, He forgives a sinful woman. He forgives a prostitute that's in the midst of the Pharisees. Um, But see, here's what's interesting. Jesus is the first of his kind to call women to discipleship. In this day and age, women were property. They were not human. They weren't seen like that. And yet Jesus shows up and calls disciples, women, to follow him. Ladies, you should be, woo this is a big deal. Jesus started, in a sense, a, a, a movement to let women have rights again, to let women have value again, for women to be seen as people and not property. 
So as this list continues, this second section, we're going to see the kingdom of God be shown throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. And it's shown specifically to the poor. So section three, it says this, the journey to Jerusalem. This uh, it really covers the most of Luke's gospel, uh, his journey to Jerusalem. And uh, as you read in the text of scripture, um, for us as Westerners, we get very uh, attached to like the chapter breaks and the verse breaks when it comes to reading the Bible. So if you do your morning devotions, you're reading through Luke 9, you'll end there, and then maybe tomorrow you'll pick up in Luke 10. Now, the Bible was written without all of that in mind. It was literally a scroll, a story. And so when you read the story, you have to be able to figure out, okay, what's the main character doing? What's shifting? What's changing? And in Luke 9.51, it starts off this chapter or this section by saying this, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. At this point in time, the whole story changes because Jesus, who has been demonstrating the ministry of God all throughout the region of Galilee, is now setting his face. It's like this, this term where he's really setting a goal. He's purposely pursuing something, and that goal is Jerusalem because he knows what's coming. So he sets his face and goes to Jerusalem. So and uh, underneath uh, that, that first box on the screen, it says that the, the rich are being transformed in this section. Again, I don't want you to be thinking economically wealthy. Now, that does apply, but that's not essentially what it is. These are the people who are higher up in society. These are the religious leaders who had freedom in the Jewish world. Um, and this could have be uh, governors, officials, doctors, lawyers, those in society who had influence, had probably some economic wealth, but really lived in a society where they benefited a lot. That's what Jesus was talking about, that there's the rich. And here's what it reveals. Uh, it reveals that those who are rich are in need of being changed. Uh, the way they see the world is off. The way their social system operates just to benefit them is wrong. Uh, their economic capacities are meant to be, be used beyond themselves, but for the good of the kingdom of God. And yet, here's an interesting note. As we read this section, there's two people that are not named in this section that need to be named among the rich. The first is Theophilus, and the second is Luke. You see, Theophilus, he's called the most excellent Theophilus. Like I said before, he's a Roman official, a Roman authority. Uh, He was one who had wealth. He was one who had status. He was one who had influence, the big idea of influence. He had that in his culture. And so the gospel needed to transform him to not use his power for evil, but use his power for good. Now, scholars are all over the map about whether he was a Christian or not. Essentially, the text doesn't tell us, but what it does tell us is that he was interested in knowing about the story of Jesus. So he's being transformed. And the second guy is Luke, the author. He was a doctor. He was, uh, probably had enough uh, benefits from society and economic means to continue to do what he was doing, but he was transformed by the gospel. So his desire was to write this down to see society changed. So here are some of those instances in this section. Jesus sends out the 72 into kingdom ministry. And what's interesting is that Jesus sends them out when they know nothing. Here's the beautiful thing. When it comes to ministry with Jesus, as long as you're with Jesus, that's what matters. It doesn't matter what you know. It matters who you know. It matters that the power of God lives inside of us for gospel ministry. And you see that happen right away. He doesn't give them a test, doesn't give them a book and says, hey, study this, know this, respond to this. He says, be with me and do ministry alongside of me. 
uh, he, he uses uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan to show the Jews how racial they were and how racist they were. Because the, the Good Samaritan uh, was a native, uh, um, I don't remember, I think it was in First Kings where it talks about how uh, the Samaritans were, were not pure Israelites. At some point in time, a couple of nations came together and created the Samaritan people. So if you're pure Israel, you don't like them because they're not of the, the bloodline of Israel. And yet Jesus says he's the one in the story above the priest, above the saint, who actually is the hero because he treated somebody with humanity. And that would have been shocking to that audience. Uh, he deals with many parables discussing the kingdom of God. And it's in this section where he talks about wealth and money the most. So if you're uncomfortable talking about wealth and money in church, I'm sorry. We're going to talk about it a lot all the way up through summer. Because that's what Gospel of Luke is talking about here in this section. How to, how to use wealth, how to use monetary means for the kingdom of God to flourish. And then throughout his journey, he invites people into table fellowship with him. You're going to see that all throughout this Gospel. He's going to bring the prostitutes, the tax collectors, those who are broken and down and out into society to his table. And he invites one chief tax collector. You think tax collector is bad. Chief tax collector is like the manager of all the tax collectors. He's the worst. Zacchaeus, he's the worst. And Jesus calls him to himself and gives him life and causes him to have life in him. So all throughout this section, we're going to see the journey to Jerusalem. The whole point, Jesus is now setting his face to Jerusalem for this last section, uh, the Jerusalem section, where he has his fulfillment of his earthly messianic ministry, and he anchors the church to Jesus in the book of Acts. So this last section, this is where Jesus has set his face. So here's where it starts. It starts by him weeping over the city. He comes to the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps because he knows the potential that's there. He knows that they know the law, and yet they don't live that way. It breaks his heart because he knows that what's coming is destruction of the temple. He knows what's coming is the destruction of Jerusalem because Israel will not change his way. And yet that doesn't change his mission. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus does what he needs to do, not in response to who we are or what we have done. He's faithful to his mission regardless of the response from people. You see, and this is where his authority gets questioned. He gets lots of opposition in this section, and here's the reason, right? He's saying that the gospel is for the poor. And those who don't like it are the rich. Those who have status, those who benefit from society. So if the gospel means that the gospel is meant to literally set captives free in a culture, the religious leaders were the ones who perpetuated that sinful culture. Uh, Their gospel enslaved others. It didn't free them. So the tension occurs in the temple, and I thought this was incredibly unique when I was reading it this week. But at this point in time, Jesus says, beware of the scribes and the Pharisees. He, he just starts going after them really, really, really bad. And he says, beware of them, because what do they do? They devour widows' houses. Now, widows in that culture would have been the poor. You don't have a husband. You don't have a brother who could take care of you, an uncle who could take care of you. You are alone and needy, and helpless. No wonder why all throughout the New Testament it says, take care of the widows and the orphans and their afflictions, because that's about showing the kingdom of God. And it's perfect timing, because Jesus is sitting there, and he's ripping on the scribes. He's going after them, and the text says, Jesus looked up, and he saw a widow across the temple. And she walks in with these two copper coins, and drops the copper coins in, and Jesus says, she gave more than you have ever given. (laughs) Talk about tension in that moment. 
talk about this story, getting us into this story and seeing the tension that Jesus is walking in. This is where Jesus really starts ticking off the religious leaders. Uh, the Passover meal occurs where Jesus looks, at, again, at table fellowship where he invites people in, and he has 10 people that nobody would have chosen. If you had these guys lined up, you would just pass and not pick them. You wouldn't pick the disciples, but Jesus did. He picked those disciples, and he called them to himself, and he establishes communion. He establishes what it's going to be like when he leaves uh, this earthly realm. So he invites them into that meal, and then uh, Jesus is crucified. Uh, in spite of pagan rulers like Pilate finding no evil with him in at all, and what Luke's trying to say is that even the pagans don't see something wrong with Jesus, but yet you do, the religious leaders. So even Luke, when he's writing this gospel, is getting aggressive in this. And, you know, Jesus is buried and he rises from the grave, proving that Satan's system of evil would be overthrown and that every wrong social system or an economic disparity would be ridden. And then you have the famous story of the road to Emmaus. Although the disciples didn't know who he was, Jesus showed up, pointed them back to the Old Testament and said, all of this is about me. It's all about me. He appears to all the disciples and tells them to wait for power from on high. And this is what closes his gospel. He closes the gospel and then reminds them, hey, remember to read the book of Acts. So that's the orderly account of Luke. And it took me 15 minutes to get through Luke. Fantastic. Okay. We're going to go through this in eight months. Now, what does this mean for you and me? As we, just because we did an outline of the gospel of Luke doesn't mean that you or I don't have to live out something in response to God's word. So here's, here are some closing thoughts that I just want to consider with you. Um, first is that the gospel of Luke may be hard for many of us to connect with. Um, here's why I say that. We're planting a church in Sherwood, Oregon, the second wealthiest county in Washington County, next to Lake Oswego. Where are the broken here? Where are the outcasts? Where are the rejects, the, the rough and tough, the unkept, those who are in need of this gospel? Presumably not here. You don't see a lot of it in Sherwood. I always joke that the sins of the city are very public, but the sins of the suburbs are very private. You can go to downtown Portland and just see the issues, but you don't see that here in Sherwood. But you do if you get inside somebody else's house. You do if you're in community with your neighbors. You hear what's going on. You know what's going on. Though we live in a facade of perfection in the suburbs, Sherwood is a community that is broken and is in need of this gospel. So the question becomes this, are we going to embrace this gospel that allows us to live differently in a city that just wants us to blend in? Are we just going to be keeping up with the Joneses so that we can have better kids and better grades and better schools and better what? Or are we going to let the gospel of Jesus Christ shape us more than the gospel of Sherwood. Here's the deal. Sherwood is telling you about great things. Here, we love the city of Sherwood. We're here to bless the city of Sherwood. But the reality is, is that the gospel of Sherwood can take us and grip us and we can get locked into its systems, its social stratas, its economics, and not live in the kingdom of God. And so my concern for us, Jesus said all throughout the scriptures, is that it's very difficult for the man or the woman with money to enter the kingdom of heaven. All of us here have wealth. All of us here have money. Now, you may think, I don't have a lot of money. You do. In reality, you do. You and I do. And we have to be careful when we come to this gospel because for many of us, this may be hard to hear. Maybe hard to hear because when it talks about the transforming the rich, 
Some of us may be acting like the rich. Some of us may be acting like the rich that Jesus is trying to call out in the scriptures. So, I mean, we have this understanding of the gospel message that Jesus came to die for our sins and give us eternal life. And what that can do in the church is that can make us very impotent to the culture in which we're around. Instead of us influencing the culture, like Luke's gospel says that Jesus did, we become the ones that are influenced by it. The goal of the Christian is to live out his life to influence the culture around him to be kingdom-minded. And here's what that means. That means that there's not just a change in our salvation, in our personal relationship with God, but there's a change in the community in which we live. So my hope for this text, as we read it, is that it challenges us to live out the gospel of the kingdom here and now. And what that means is that we've got to have a different lens in order to see it. We've got to come to the scriptures ready to hear. The second thought I have is that the gospel of Luke should leave us wrapped up in the story. When was the last time that you were encapsulated by a story? Like when did the story grip you that you just could not get enough of it? You can laugh at me, but I'm a total fan of This Is Us. Who's seen that on NBC? Who's This Is it? Thank you. Yeah, Phillips is. What's up? Yep. Young married with kids. That's why. That's all we do. We do that. But that show is awesome. Like, there's like, I can't tell you about it because if you watch the first episode, you figure out what's going on. But I'm like, I have not been like excited about a TV show like that for a long time because there's a good story behind it. Here's the deal. Uh, I had a pastor uh, who was preaching in seminary and he said that the Bible is not boring. The Bible is boring when pastors make it boring. The Bible is an incredible story. Second Timothy says that scripture is God breathed, literally inspired by God. But oftentimes we can just see the text of Scripture as inspired, but not the genre in which it is written. And you see, here's what's interesting. The, the, the book of Leviticus was inspired to be a book of ceremonial laws. That was how it was supposed to come across. The Gospel of Luke isn't a historical book. It's not a wisdom literature. It's not apocalyptic prophetic literature. It's a story. And what are you supposed to do with the story? You're supposed to be enwrapped in it, engulfed in it, be amazed by this story. There's going to be plots, main characters, sub-characters, overall themes, tension, conflict. Again, if you love English, you love me right now, okay? This is what we're doing in the Gospel of Luke. That there's this story that you and I have to be engulfed in. And my hope is that as we read through the Gospel of Luke, you are just going to be amazed at the story of what Jesus is doing. And then finally, The gospel of Luke should change our lives. It doesn't matter how much we know about God, but it matters how we live out our faith in God. This book is going to challenge us, but will you and I respond? Here's the deal. We live in a world where we can choose to do what we want. We have have autonomy. We have authority. We can do whatever we want. But here's where that gets harmful in the church is that when you come in and you hear the word of God being taught, or better yet, when you're studying the Bible with other believers, I hope you're studying the Bible with other believers in this church. I hope you grab guys or grab gals and read the Bible together. Don't let this be the only time you're in God's word. But what we can do is we can open up God's word and say, yes, I'll believe this and obey this, but I won't believe this and I won't obey this. Here's my question to us. Are we going to be people that when the Bible is opened, we already have a predisposition to say yes to God? Or are we going to have a predisposition to say, 
I will listen to you, God. I will do what you have to say if I feel like it or if I want to. Because the gospel of Luke is going to challenge us and change us, but we have to be people who live out that change. We can't let the Bible become stale in a uh, culture that is completely biblically illiterate. We have to be a people who love the word of God. We have to be people who enjoy the word of God. And as we go through the gospel of Luke, that's my hope, is that you and I will live changed lives, that we will have the, the desire to come to the scriptures and say, God, yes, whatever you say, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Not if it's good for me or if it's comfortable for me or nice for me. Because here's the deal. We're used to good, nice, and comfortable, but that doesn't get us anywhere. What gets us somewhere is cost and laboring and giving of yourself where it's uncomfortable and hard and crazy so that the kingdom of God can be seen. You and I have that responsibility. So as Marcus comes up and we take communion, I want you to go to communion with this mindset today. That this gospel came to set you free. But this gospel came to also set cultures free and governments free and evil that exists in those things free. So as you take of the bread and as you take of the cup, be reminded that you are a part of the ministry of reconciliation. You and I are a part of making Jesus known. Let me pray for us.